anyway, yeah, yeah, this will take me, roughly speaking, an hour. That's what it did uh, first time round. So I'll try to keep it definitely limited to that. I'm going to start off as uh, advertised in the paper in terms of the picture with Ukraine and just comment on the so-called big news of um, the Russian forces abandoning um, Snake Island. It's a, well, you've all seen the map, little tiny island in the, um, the west of uh, the Black Sea. And uh, in, the, in, the, in the mainstream media, and I presume in the uh, Ukrainian media as well, this has been um, heralded as a quote unquote strategic uh, victory. Uh, it's obviously nothing of the sort. Yes, it's a propaganda uh, victory. It's a tactical uh, victory. But the idea uh, that, uh, well, is Ukraine going to um, uh, put uh, its forces on Snake Island? No, of course they're not. And is uh, the Russian abandonment, which is how it's portrayed, is this going to release the grain? <laughs> no, this is all rubbish. Look, let's just get a few facts right. To start with, Odessa was originally, uh, which is one of the main ports on the Black Sea coast, not the only one, but one of the main ones, that was originally mined uh, by Ukrainian forces. Why? Because in the early stages uh, of this conflict, the fear was, maybe justified, that uh, Russian forces would make a landing. Uh, using marines and, um, you know, basically come in from the sea, air cover, you get onto land and uh, you push forward. So they mined it. Um, that still is the case. Snake Island makes no difference one way or the other, except in terms of Ukrainian morale. You, you know, you all remember the, what was it, the, the message to the Moskova when uh, they were originally uh, there in terms of Ukraine, of course wasn't it fuck off or whatever charming uh, rejoinder was. So yeah, it, th this is a propaganda question. It's got no military relevance whatsoever. Uh, Snake Island presumably uh, because of Western supplies came within range of Ukrainian forces and they just blasted it. And um, you know, that's, that's it. And I presume that they hadn't dug deep and I don't know whether you can dig deep in a place like Snake Island. I don't know the geology of it. Either way, uh, if you have troops there, uh, they are very vulnerable uh, to attack by missile or aircraft, and uh, hence the abandonment of Snake Island. And of course, <laughs> equally on the other side, they didn't abandon it as, a, as an act of goodwill. They abandoned it because they didn't want their troops wiped out quite sensibly. Uh, but as I said, it, it has no um, strategic uh, value in the um, in the Black Sea. You cannot say that about uh, Crimea, on the other hand, and the port there, Sevastopol. OK, so meanwhile, in the serious war, which is in the east at the moment, uh, i.e. in Donbass, what we have reports of, which seem to be you know, not disputed on either side, so we can basically go uh, and treat that as a uh, fact that uh, Russian forces are advancing, roughly speaking, by a mile or two miles uh, a day. Uh, costs on both sides um, seem to be high. We're not dealing with World War I, uh, but on the other hand, it's grinding, it's costly, and certainly that will be the case uh, when it comes to cities. Um, you know, we've seen cities withstand sieges for a month, Cities can withstand sieges, we know from World War II for a lot longer than that. But that is costing Russia dear in terms of manpower, equipment and morale. Uh, but it's also true uh, for the other side uh, that uh, they are also losing considerable numbers of uh, troops and also what we can gather at least from Russian claims. And I would take that as broadly to be expected something like 30% uh, of what the West, and you know what I mean by the West, mainly America, Britain, plus some others, are sending in terms of military equipment, a third of that 
uh, is destroyed uh, before it gets to the, the front line. That should be something we expect, i.e. a missile attack, uh, an aircraft attack uh, will take out um, what's coming um, in, let alone before you actually engage uh, with the enemy forces on the front line. So when it comes to latest atrocities, you know, in terms of mouths being um, rocketed and other similar stories, personally, I then get into the realm of where I just don't know, you know, were munitions stored there near there? I don't know. And I don't think, you know, I certainly don't want to get into um, which side did what. All I would say is war is barbaric. Uh, and it involves the, the loss of civilians, it involves accident, it involves deliberate terror as well. Um, either way, uh, what I would say is that uh, Zelensky's call, and I take that as propaganda rather than a, um, a realistic assessment, for the war to be over by winter when the snow and the mud and the rain arrive uh, in Ukraine, uh, that ain't going to happen. The reason for him saying it is obvious, and that is he wants more uh, equipment, he wants heavier equipment, he wants more deadly, more sophisticated uh, equipment. Um, will he get it? Almost certainly yes. Uh, when he gets it, will the war be over, to use a euphemism, by Christmas? No, it certainly won't. Um, barring, you know, big events like a change in president in the White House, uh, Zelensky being overthrown internally or Putin being overthrown internally. I think that what we can say is that we would expect this to be a long and grinding war. Um, you know, it has all the appearances of going on and on year after grinding uh, year. Um, and all you can say is that uh, in terms of equipment coming from the West, it, it is unlikely uh, to make it, um, uh, a, you know, an automatic uh, winner. On the other hand, uh, eventually, uh, if enough is supplied, um, who knows? I would simply say it's, it's an open question uh, who will win. Certainly what we can say is the original Western hopes and, you know, America, uh, Britain um, and all the rest of it, that sanctions would do it. Um, that's um, delusional. Sanctions haven't done it, won't do it. Uh, they make a certain difference. Uh, but all we need to know is the price of oil and Russia's still selling it. And uh, the prices are at, uh, you know, sky high uh, levels. So the Russian economy has contracted marginally, you know, given a war, I think by about 7%. Um, anyway, let's just move on. What Putin didn't calculate up, upon, I think we can say that reasonably certain, is his move against NATO expansionism would lead to NATO expansionism. Uh, there was no immediate prospect of Ukraine being let into NATO, and that's still the case. Uh, otherwise, if it was, then you've got the whole of NATO against Russia and NATO doesn't want that. Nonetheless, in terms of America, it clearly had an aim of at some point incorporating Ukraine into NATO, incorporating it into the EU and going further uh, to Georgia and maybe, who knows, even further to the east. But the result of that would have been, uh, from a Russian point of view, uh, is that um, it gets cut off, gets cut off from the um, Black Sea and therefore gets cut off in effective terms from the warm waters of the Mediterranean. In other words, they'd have to go all the way around Africa, all, all the way around Europe uh, to get to uh, the Mediterranean. And we know that they've got a base uh, in Aleppo in Syria, which they regard as important, and America regards uh, as important. So that's what Putin was striking against. Uh, we know that he'd already made a move in 2014, um, taking hold of um, uh, Crimea and also at least parts of 
the eastern parts of uh, uh, Donbass. That's really what this struggle uh, is over. Plus, of course, now, um, you know, uh, Biden, the US will have its eye on regime change uh, in Moscow. And of course, Putin clearly uh, had his eye on regime change in Kiev and that failed. He could still uh, carry on, uh, you know, after taking Donbass, which seems to be well within their grasp. He could still carry on. Maybe they've got aims to um, move further to the west in the south uh, towards Moldova. I don't know, um, but that, that's where they seem to be um, heading. And maybe at a final push, they push on Kiev. But again, that's too many factors to uh, for at least me. Uh, to speculate. But in terms of NATO expansion, of course, what we've seen, we haven't seen it completed, but it looks like it will, um, is the uh, entry of Finland and Sweden um, into uh, NATO, um, previously two uh, determinedly neutral uh, countries with a political consensus in both countries uh, to stay uh, neutral. It's Putin uh, that's persuaded them uh, to um, throw their lot in uh, with NATO. And of course, also what we've seen in the Madrid uh, summit is the commitment to up battle-ready NATO troops up to 300,000. And that's a substantial uh, force. And of course, again, just to uh, backtrack, um, also the war that they were expecting during the Cold War, which would be some sort of Soviet blitzkrieg pushing uh, to the West, and uh, then the West um, basically grading up its military uh, response in retaliation. Um, things look very different now, um, given what's happened in um, Ukraine. So you get debates in military circles uh, about tanks. Are they any use anymore? Uh, they're certainly not the weapons that they were. Uh, you've not only got these uh, laws, these uh, shoulder-launched missiles, you've also got drones. And I don't know what a tank costs, but just throw in $8 million as a, as a figure. How much does an law cost? Well, 125000 maybe. And it's reusable. Um, so, you know, militarily, um, things have radically changed. Whether Russian uh, military doctrine um, has changed since Soviet times, I don't know, but it wouldn't appear to have uh, given the phase one um, of uh, the Ukraine war, which, yeah, they quickly got towards uh, Kiev and then ground uh, to halt for a whole number of reasons, but amongst which you would count logistics, uh, but also uh, the success of Ukrainian forces using this new technology. And I say new, it's been around now, what? 10, 20 uh, years. Um, okay, moving on, ask the question, would uh, Putin, um, if he completes phase two, and I'm taking phase two as seizing hold of um, the whole of the uh, Donbass, would he then uh, declare victory? Um, I'm sure he will, and he'll declare victory for stage two. Will the special military operation then be over? Uh, I don't know, uh, because what I do know, or at least what I think I know, is if they make that offer, it will be turned down. Um, you know, the way I read it at the moment with very stiff, very successful, very unexpected to many people, including myself, Ukrainian resistance is that... Uh, the hand of Johnson, the hand of Biden, uh, crucially, and Zelensky is that we take back everything will have been strengthened. And that will be the war aim of Ukraine. That's the war aim of NATO, um, even though that means sacrificing the economies of uh, Italy, but crucially France and absolutely uh, Germany. I mean, Germany, uh, a country where they're talking about, you know, rationing gas uh, supplies. Um, so um, the US is prepared to fight with Ukrainian, uh, you know, forces to the last man, and it's also prepared to fight um, in, in, and, and sacrifice the German um, economy in order to do down uh, Russia. 
Okay. Um, also, just another uh, thing coming out, very important, out of the Madrid conference um, of NATO, and that's the inclusion of China uh, amongst their strategic uh, questions, i.e. China. And think about the change. Think about, you know, um, wasn't so many years ago, was it, when George Osborne uh, was um, fating China, of where Z and David Cameron were sharing a pint in a quaint English pub somewhere. Um, and it was a love-in and the, the dominant discourse was that as capitalism develops, you've heard it before, I'm sure, as capitalism develops, then China will go the way of the West. Democracy or what's called democracy uh, will develop. And China will then elevate itself into the ranks of civilized countries like America and Britain and France and Germany. Well, that ain't happened. And what we have is only one serious rival at the present time to US hegemony, and that's China. It's a long way behind. And the first people that will tell you that is the Chinese, whatever the worshippers of China tell you otherwise. The Chinese are well aware uh, of their weakness. After all, there you are, you have one China, not only Hong Kong, not only Tibet, not only Inner Mongolia, uh, but Taiwan and China cannot unite with it. Why? Because of the strength of the US fleet and the resistance you would expect uh, that the Taiwanese um, army, which is mini compared with the PLA. Uh, but you've got to get them over there, haven't you? And you've got to get them over there by air uh, or ship. And therefore, uh, it's a no-goer, at least at the moment. That's, that's homeland. That's not Africa or South America or what, whatever. So China has been now included in uh, NATO's uh, uh, areas of rivalry. And I think we should expect some sort of equivalent of a NATO to be formed uh, in the Pacific. I know we've got... Um, the alliance between Australia, UK and the US. Uh, but I think that what we should expect is the inclusion of South Korea, uh, Japan. Taiwan is a more difficult one because everyone, bar everyone, um, recognizes one China. So to include Taiwan, but effectively uh, it will be included uh, in that system. So I don't know what it will be called, but um, Pato or Poto or something along those lines. I mean, there's been plenty of other such things in recent history. So CETO and CENTO uh, uh, come to mind, you know, um, long gone. Uh, but something new, I think, will come into, my, uh, into place. I don't think it will just be an extension of NATO, but I could be wrong. Maybe the North Atlantic Treaty Organization becomes the World Treaty um, Organization. It's not inconceivable. Either way, uh, clearly, uh, in terms of uh, the United States, it's first we do Russia, then we do China. And uh, I, d I don't think things could be made more explicit uh, than they have been um, um, at the uh, Madrid uh, conference. OK, I'm going to move on now back to Blighty and uh, deal with the announcement by Nicola. Uh, Sturgeon of um, a referendum, Indy 2. Uh, what's the date they want to go for? October 23. Uh, it's no hoper. She knows it. I know it. Everyone knows it. It's not going to happen. Um, so it's the same question as 2014, which was a real gift, I have to say, to the SNP. Do you want Scotland to be an independent country? It's not how you're meant to ask referendum questions unless you're in charge of setting the question and given David Cameron, uh, you know, in the last analysis. And I think the Electoral Commission uh, play a role here. It's a bit of a funny uh, question because the tendency would be people would tend to answer, yes, I want Scotland to be an independent country. You pose it that way. Um, and you know, they didn't get the answer that they wanted, i.e. the SNP. But it was a fine one thing, wasn't it? Anyway, uh, the problem is uh, that in spite of some comments on the left saying Scotland has no problem with self-determination, here is an illustration of why Scotland doesn't have self-determination. Not only does it not 
you know, stand over who decides the question, which is pretty important in a referendum. It, it doesn't even have the power to call a referendum. That is in the remit of Westminster, which is in the remit of the prime minister. That's basically the push and the shove. So Scotland has limited home rule, uh, but it doesn't have the right to self-determination. Now, from our point of view, uh, we're not in favour of referendums. From our point of view, if the SNP can get a majority in Hollywood uh, for that, which it can, it ought to have the right to separate. Um, okay, you've got to negotiate uh, that set, you know, that separation. Nonetheless, there's a majority in Hollywood, not because there's an SNP majority, there isn't, but there is a majority if you add the Greens in, and that's what you do. Um, so uh, the present government in Scotland is a form of coalition government, and uh, that government is in favour of independence, and they've got a majority in Hollywood. From our point of view, that's enough. Okay, so Scotland doesn't have the right to self-determination. It's got to go, first of all, to the government, and then it will go to the High Court. And the High Court will turn around and say, no, you can't do it. That's obvious. That's just obvious. I was listening to Lord Sumpton. I think that's his name, a former High Court judge. High Tory. Um, he was asked... Uh, does the High Court make decisions on the basis of politics? And he laughed. He said, no, no, of course it uh, doesn't. Don't you know two of its members are Scottish? Like, well, you mean there's no Scottish Tories or no Scottish Labour Party members or whatever? Of course it makes decisions on the basis of uh, uh, politics, and they're not going to decide to elect uh, Nicola Sturgeon go ahead with a legal referendum. Um, full stop. So that's easy. To predict. So why is Nicola Sturgeon going ahead with it? Well, clearly uh, there is pressure on her to go for independence. There's the majority. I don't know how many times the SNP has won. I'm talking in parliamentary terms, remember. I don't know how many times it's won or negotiated a majority in Hollywood, uh, but it's more than two, isn't it? Um, and she can't get independence. So you would have thought um, that there would be external pressure on her, but I don't think that's the case. Um, the SSP, Scottish Socialist Party, is long blown up. ALBA, much to my uh, surprise, got absolutely nowhere in the last Scottish elections. I mean, it's a gift for any uh, small party to get into Hollywood because the rules are very flexible, very generous uh, to small parties in Scotland, they couldn't get anywhere, which, wow. So the pressure is internal. Uh, this is from the ranks of the SNP uh, itself. And I think what it is, is about I've got to do something. So what will the result be? Well, the High Court will turn them down. That's obvious. Boris Johnson or any other British prime minister will turn them down. Then, in terms of the game plan of the SNP, it's this, that the next election, after they get turned down, and who knows what election that is, because we don't know when the next general election will be. We know when the next parliamentary elections in Scotland uh, will be, but we don't know. Uh, forget all the fixed-term parliament rubbish, by the way. That's just You can just have a vote on a wet uh, afternoon to get rid of that, and that's maybe what they'll do. Either way... Uh, what they're saying is the next general election and we stand on one issue, one issue alone, and that's Scottish independence. And we expect to get an absolute majority of the Scottish people and turn around to Westminster and say, that will show you. But the idea uh, that you can fight a general election on one issue, I'm at least dubious about. I mean, imagine if uh, Boris Johnson in the light, and this is all made, made, making it up, I readily confess. Okay. So Keir Starmer is found guilty of uh, drinking a beer in a party up in Durham and um, he's fined and he, he resigns. And Boris Johnson, who's facing a, a committee of inquiry, a parliamentary inquiry, headed by Harriet Harman. How did the hell that happen? Uh, which is meant to question him in autumn. Instead says, well, sod that, I'm going for a general election. What do they do in Scotland? Say, well, this issue isn't about Boris Johnson and who the government is in Westminster. It's not about Keir Starmer. 
and honesty in politics or whatever other bullshit they come at. This is about Scottish independence. Is that a runner? I mean, I, I don't know, but it, it just strikes me that it's very hard to run a single issue campaign when it comes to a general election. The Tories will be turning around in, um, in Scotland and saying, what about Ukraine? You know, what about the Ukraine? What about the Russian threat? What do they say about uh, uh, Brexit? You know, what, what about hard Brexit? What about? So I, I'm, I'm just at least sceptical. Uh, and at least as um, a possible thesis, and I don't want to push this too far because everything can change so suddenly, but I at least would put forward tentatively the idea that we've reached peak nationalism in Scotland, i.e., uh, although opinion polls haven't radically altered in Scotland, you know, radically altered since uh, the um, uh, independence referendum with Alex Salmon and David Cameron and all the rest of it, politics has. And um, this famous quote, uh, once in a generation, was said by Alex Salmon, if I'm remembering right, unless radical, you know, unless there's radical political changes. Well, there has been. And therefore, it's perfectly legitimate, you know, if you believe in referendums to go for a referendum, except <laughs> in terms of just economics. And I'm not saying that's what people vote for when it comes to a referendum, but the logic about Scottish independence, it's a lot more shaky now than it was. OK, imagine uh, uh, Cameron had won the EU election, which was what he should have done. Um, that's, what, that's why you have referendums, is to win them, not to lose them. Um, and then Nicola Sturgeon says, well, under these circumstances where Britain is part of the EU, we just want to divide Britain and we'll, we'll just be in, e, in the EU. We just want an independent voice on the Council of Ministers. I know you then got the objections from Spain and maybe France because of Corsica or whatever, but, you know, at least that's feasible. And then everything is the same, isn't it? But now we've got a situation of where there has been not a soft Brexit, of where Britain is still, or the UK, I know you've got Northern Ireland, and I won't go into the details there, but Britain is no longer in the customs union, no longer part of the single market, is striking out there boasting about doing great trade deals with Australia. Wow. The problem that Nicola Sturgeon has got is precisely the problem that Boris Johnson negotiated because of a hard Brexit in Northern Ireland. And therefore, you have to have either a hard border of some sort in the RSC going down there, or you have to have a hard border on the island of Ireland. And they decide they don't want a hard border on the island of Ireland because of the Good Friday Agreement. Therefore, they have to come to this crazy, you know, um, RSC. Uh, solution and with all the politics that's it and then Britain says we don't like that and the DUP says we don't well that's what you would have between um, England and Wales but England um, and Scotland and I don't think the results will look pretty for Scotland with Britain outside or whatever you want to call it the rump UK outside the EU uh, Scotland has been tied into the UK economy under capitalism, um, you know, since when? 1715, 1745, when the Highlands were crushed and, uh, you know, capitalism was definitely triumphant in Scotland. Scotland in the lowlands was already developing in, how should you put it, um, in unity uh, with um, English capitalism, you not only had the unity of the crowns, but economic unity. There was at the time, uh, you know, in the 19th century, you could go and find um, political movements in Scotland called the Northern Britain. We're not Scottish because Scottishness was associated with the Highlanders, these robbers, these backward tribal um, elements. Either way, the point would be that what you had is Scotland very much benefiting from the British Empire, developing economically along with the British Empire. I know there's been de-industrialization. Nonetheless, if there was a hard border, it wouldn't be England uh, that would suffer an economic crisis. It would be Scotland. And Scotland, in my humble opinion, 
uh, would suffer not only in terms of a drop in GDP, it would suffer from depopulation. It would suffer the same sort of depopulation uh, that Ireland um, has seen. In particular, I mean, I haven't particularly looked up the figures, but I, I, you know, I sort of know them instinctively. Since 1928 and De Valera, that's what would happen to Scotland. Now, that would be the argument that you'd have in a referendum campaign, of course, except we know uh, that if by some fluke, and it's not going to happen, the Supreme Court said, yes, uh, Nicola, you can go ahead with your referendum. We know what the mainstream British parties would do. They would boycott the damn thing and say, this is a farce. This is a joke. I don't know whether they would participate in the TV or radio uh, debates. I don't know. If they did, they would simply be saying uh, this referendum is illegitimate, um, binding on no one. And the whole independence thing is a fiasco and, and stupid. Uh, you know, in other words, um, these parties, Labour and Tory in particular, but I guess the Lib Dems as well, would do what Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party should have done in 2016 to Michael, uh, to David Cameron's uh, referendum, turn around and said, we don't want this. Uh, we're not having anything to do with it. We don't care what the result is. It's an irrelevance as far as we're concerned. This is our um, political stance and the danger with a referendum is what happened with it, is it splits the working class movement. That, that would be quite feasible politics for the Labour Party to have done. And it would have just uh, changed the situation dramatically. Remember, you know, historically Corbyn was anti-EU, was being dragged all the time, remember, throughout that campaign and after by Keir Starmer uh, towards a second referendum position. And it wasn't just, um, um, Corbyn, was it, uh, that won it uh, for the Tories, this landslide for Boris Johnson? It was the EU, stupids. If you delegitimise this referendum from the beginning, things would be very different. OK, you cannot rerun history, but I'm simply saying uh, that as far as I can see things, legal nationalism, constitutional nationalism in Scotland has run its course. Um, of course, that leaves the door open for unconstitutional nationalism. And I don't know whether that would grow. Perhaps it will. After all, all we need to do is look over the water at Ireland and contrast the Home Rule Party, which ran out of steam, had no answers because the Tories checkmated uh, moves towards Home Rule uh, with a threat of counter-revolution and army rebellion. Um, OK. Um, well, there's not going to be home. Well, there's not going to be independence for Scotland <laughs> under the Constitution. That's that's it at the moment. Um, Keir Starmer is just about to rule out any coalition deal uh, with the SNP. So Nicola Sturgeon has run out of um, tarmac, as far as I can see it, which then leaves the possibility, just the possibility of more radical forces. I won't use the word left wing, but more radical forces. But that's. That's speculation. Um, anyway, um, just a couple of other points on Scotland. Yes, we believe in uh, Scotland's right to self-determination. I've already said that. That should be a simple parliamentary majority question. Um, do we think that should be exercised in favour of independence? No, we think that's dumb. Uh, we think it's dumb purely from an economic point of view, but crucially, we think it's dumb from a working class point of view. For us, working class unity is the key question. And we not only want uh, unity in Europe, that's why we oppose Brexit, we want unity in Britain. And those, sorry comrades, those foolish comrades on the left spew Socialist Workers' Party, Socialist Appeal, uh, that say that the breakup of uh, Britain uh, would weaken our enemies. Absolutely right. Of course it would weaken our enemy, but it would also weaken us stupid. And so the idea that the working class, you know, is going to come to power on the basis of the balkanization of everywhere is, well, it's it's more than dumb. And if these forces represented anything serious, uh, I don't think they would go down that line. Um, but what they see is something moving and therefore they jump on it, uh, whatever it's, uh, um, you know, it, its political destination logically is. And that's weakening uh, the working class. And so 
cut your, you know, cut your nose to spite your face. It's stupid. Um, so anyway, uh, no, no, no to Scottish uh, independence, the right to Scottish independence, which is an English question. The English working class should champion Scotland's right to self-determination. Okay, moving on. The Labour Party. There are stories going around on Momentum's site. Shock, I know you're going to be shocked by this, that Labour HQ is barring people who are to the left of Tony Blair uh, from being uh, included in the long list of uh, prospective parliamentary candidates for the forthcoming general election, whenever that is going to be. Well, what a surprise that is. It's not. Uh, what are the reasons being given to barring people? Well, <laughs> some people have mentioned Stop the War Coalition positively. Some people have denied that the Labour Party's got an anti-Semitism crisis. Some people have actually quoted Andrew Fisher. Anyone know Andrew Fisher? He's one of these um, Corbyn advisors, used to be a star turn, boring at the Labour representation committee. He's a Keynesian. Uh, he, oh, he voted class war <laughs> in an election in, in Croydon some way, way back. Either way, these crimes uh, apparently bar you from the long list uh, that Victoria Street is permitting uh, to go through to um, uh, constituency uh, Labour parties. But the Labour Party protests and says, no, 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 we're not barring people uh, who to the left of um, Tony Blair. That's just a nonsense. After all, we've allowed Paul Mason um, onto the long list. Let me get it the constituency, right? It's up in Manchester, in uh, Stretford and Urmston. Paul has his eye on a constituency. He fancies himself being an MP. I, indeed, in my view, he fancies himself being Minister of Defence. But the idea that he's actually to the left of Tony Blair is he? Well, if he is, that was yesterday or the day before, but he's moving to the right at such a rate of knots. Um, I think he'll actually be on the right of Tony Blair uh, if he isn't there already. Uh, either way, uh, I think out of the mouths of uh, Victoria Street, we have a lot being said uh, about Paul Mason, nothing <laughs> being said about the toleration of left wingers uh, in terms of the long lists that are being allowed through. Okay, something seems to be going on. Um, I read um, Owen Jones in The Garden. He's not my normal um, reading, I have to say. Um, but anyway, I looked him up um, and got the quote that I wanted to get, which is about uh, Keir Starmer barring front benches from going along to RMT pickets. What would Owen make of that? And uh, much to my unsurprise, Owen says that as a result of this, because this is stupid, because the, the, the strikes are so popular and it's obviously just, isn't it? There you are, workers facing longer hours, worse conditions and being offered a pay cut and they're going on strike. Well, what a, you know, what a cause. We should surely rally to them. And I, I agree with him. But what he says is, how comes Keir Starmer's barring his front bench from going along to picket lines and, and not condemning David Lammy for saying that Labour Party wouldn't support Heathrow uh, workers who go on strike for similar uh, issues. They don't want to take a pay cut, uh, uh, David. You know, like, should you really expect them to take a pay cut? OK, so Owen says, well, as a result of this, Labour Party is suffering, quote, unquote, I'm not making it up, an identity crisis. What? Well, sorry, Owen. I mean, last time I read Owen, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I read, I, I read this first time round, uh, but the last time I looked up Owen, he, here's a very interesting article by him um, in a paper that used to be edited by, uh, goes out of my mind, Bob Pitt, Bob Pitt. And the, the name of the journal was called What Next? And there was an article by, um, very good article um, by our, um, our Owen, uh, about the police strike and about the attempt to unionize the uh, police force and the banning of the police uh, union and the setting up of the police federation, which he poo-pooed. 
um, and said, well, this is a real trade union and he's quite right. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is Owen Jones knows his Labour history. He knows his left. So the idea that the Labour Party, because it's because its leader is barring the front bench from going along to a picket line, is therefore suffering from an identity crisis, is moronic. But Owen isn't a moron. Right. So if we go back to Labour history, you can find, yes, Saint uh, uh, Keir Hardy himself condemning strikes. So when the Scottish Mine Workers Union uh, was defeated in a strike, he celebrated it because, you know, he was very much of the last Salian, um, you know, wing of the Labour movement, which said it's about standing in Parliament, uh, strikes are a complete diversion, iron law of wages and all the rest of it. OK, that, that theory didn't inform particularly, I, I think, uh, Ramsay MacDonald, but Ramsay MacDonald, yes, denounced strikes. Um, the Labour Party didn't stand with the TUC and the general strike, didn't stand with the miners who, you know, stayed out for six months. I don't know about Lansbury. He might have been different, but Clement Attlee wasn't any different. You know, attacked the dockers when they went on strike in the 50s. Ban May Day demonstrations. Harold Wilson, was he any different? No, I remember because I'm old enough, an old fart I am. The small group of politically motivated men, this is people in the NUS, and I'm not talking about NUS in terms of students, National Union of Seamen. And who was he attacking? Prescott, he was one of the deputy prime minister under Blair. He was one of these politically motivated men. This strike wasn't about economics, it's about politics. He's trying to bring Britain to, et cetera, et cetera. What about Neil Kinnock in the miners' strike? He was on the picket lines, I mean, wasn't he? You know it, I know it. Of course he wasn't. What about Ed Miliband? No. You know, what we actually see in terms of uh, the Labour Party is even with, even with uh, Corbyn, is a commitment to keep Thatcher's anti-trade union laws. The difference with Corbyn is he was prepared to get rid of some of well, Cameron's anti-trade union laws, but not Thatcher's. So I don't know what, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Jeremy and John would have done in a strike. I, I think they would have turned up on a picket line. But the real crisis, the real identity crisis that we actually see isn't, of course, with Keir Starmer and the Labour leadership. They're just behaving true to form. They want to get into number 10. They want to become ministers. They're doing the right thing to do that in terms of the bourgeoisie. No, it's Owen Jones that is suffering the identity crisis. What can he do when he's faced with, uh, you know, um, Boris Johnson and uh, the Tory bigots and the Tory incompetence? Uh, and then he looks at uh, Keir Starmer and he goes, well, Blair too. Well, it's not inaccurate, is it? So what I'm picking up is both from Owen, and he actually says that in his Guardian article, maybe we need something different and uh, you know, don't take us for granted, uh, Keir. I also picked this up from Dave Nellis and Tusk talking about our meager forces. Um, are talks happening with Sharon Graham? I don't know. Are talks happening with um, Corbyn? I don't know, but I think they might be. Uh, what will that produce? Um, well, my suspicion, it will produce another broad party um, and people get very excited about it. And this is going to be new, 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 new uh, politics, politics that you've never known before, except it will be. Um, will we participate in it? Yes, I can almost certainly guarantee that. What will happen with it? It will fall apart. It will come to disaster. Uh, why? Because one, you've got first past the post, but most importantly, broad parties are determined by the right wing. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that means class compromise. That means sellout. Uh, that means not fighting for socialism. And what is required in the world today, economically, ecologically, in every respect, is the rule of the working class and the transition uh, towards a communist mode of production. Just a footnote to Sir Keir is Sir Tony, arise Sir Tony. And Sir Tony has had his uh, Future of Britain conference. I don't know how many people attended. It was boring, I'm sure. 
Um, but what seems to be going on there, in my opinion, isn't a third party attempt. Tony Blair isn't stupid, uh, along with Owen Jones and Keir Starmer. None, none of these people are stupid. There are, there are stupid people in the world, but I wouldn't include any of those three amongst the stupid people. So what's Tony Blair's uh, uh, big idea? His big idea, I think, is to bring Tories and uh, former uh, right wing Labour uh, people into the Keir Starmer camp on the basis of um, not revisiting Brexit, but doing something along the lines of talking about Europe, I would guess, uh, along the lines of rejoining the customs union or doing negotiations. I don't know what the formulation will be. Something along those lines. This will solve uh, the Northern Ireland question. This will solve our economic crisis. This will end the madness. We accept Brexit, but sort of type uh, idea. Now, maybe that's a gift to Johnson, and Johnson would certainly welcome that. Whether Sir Keir Starmer would welcome that, I don't know. But I think that's what the name of the game is. Um, interestingly, um, in terms of the reports, uh, Sir Tony says about Sir Keir, oh, sir, aren't they? Sir Keir is that there's a, a gaping hole when it comes to ideas. Mm, I agree. I've looked at Sir Keir's uh, uh, pamphlet. I can't remember what the hell it was called. It was just full of crap, wasn't it? I don't know if anyone actually took the bother to read it. It was just vacuous, vacuous, vacuous. But then I say to myself, well, what about Tony before he was Sir Tony? Well, I remember, does anyone else remember? Communitarianism, the third way, that was a big idea. What's all that mean? What's, it's just a slogan. It was a piece of nonsense. And what's his other one? Um, tough on the causes of crime. And what's our priorities? Education, educate. I mean, what was his policy? His policy basically was triangulation. And that is going right up to the Tories. You go to the right, as far right as you can go. You accept the sale of council houses. You're not going to reverse that. You accept the anti-trade union laws. You accept that. Uh, but you're going to be nicer uh, than John Major's uh, Tories. That was basically uh, Tony Blair's selling point. Meanwhile, as every observer has pointed out, including Mike McNair, including myself, is what happens is that the centre of politics, of course, moves to the right. Um, so where Tony Blair is today is going to be to the right of where Tony Blair was in 1997, or as he was making his bid uh, for prime minister uh, before, before that general election. Either way, uh, certainly when it comes to his uh, future of Britain, there's a gaping black hole and it's called ideas. He hasn't got any ideas other than Sir Keir should have um, a big idea. And the big idea almost always turns out to be the most ridiculous, small nonsense uh, uh, idea imaginable. There's a, a volume on my bookshelf over there by Estefan Mazaros, and he, he just makes uh, the point that the bourgeoisie has to keep reinventing itself, has to keep reinventing its ideology. And as long as that ideology convinces enough people for enough of the time, then you keep it uh, uh, going. But inevitably, after a few years, it becomes shop spoiled and you have to get a new big idea. And that's really what Tony Blair is calling for. How much time have I got left? 10 minutes by my phone. And I'm going to give you a lightning tour. I'll try not to speak too fast because a lot to go. I'm going to give you a, a, a lightning tour of pride. Uh, pride, 50th anniversary. Um, a million out on the streets of London, loads and loads of people out throughout the world. And where did it begin? Began in London, began with a march of 700 people. It was the initiative, as I understand it, of an organization called the Gay Liberation Front. Why Liberation Front? Because they were bouncing off the prestige, the danger, the radicalism of the Algerian NLF. And also, of course, uh, 1969 and all of that, that's when uh, um, um, uh, Gay Liberation Front was formed in America. They were also bouncing off, of course, of the Vietnamese National Liberation Front. And 
yes, I went and looked up my, you know, I Googled it, uh, Gay Liberation Front, Britain Manifesto. And I think this was, yeah, 1971, they wrote this manifesto. Unfortunately, it was edited in 1978. And I didn't have the time or the bother, I have to say, to try to track down the, um, you know, unadulterated uh, 1971 manifesto. Suffice to say, it was a little bit to the left, a little bit more radical uh, than what was going on the streets yesterday in London, and I suspect in other parts of the world. What were they standing for? They said that there needs to be a revolutionary change in our whole society. They said that it's not just reforms uh, that we need. We need reforms, but that's far from inadequate. Uh, they said that their main ally is the women's uh, liberation movement, and they located oppression uh, of gays and women in the family, in schools, in the media, in employment, in the law, in terms of physical violence, in terms of psychiatry that declared, I think, homosexuality to be a treatable condition in 1969. This is after the abolition of, uh, uh, well, decriminalization of sex between men um, as long as you're over 21, uh, but in private. So, for example, if I'd gone out uh, with my girlfriend and held hands and then had a snog, of course, that's perfectly legal. But if I went out and, uh, with my boyfriend, who could be like I am in my 60s, held hands, then had a snog in public, that would have been illegal. And there were loads of examples, not only of people having sex, uh, but kissing holding hands and showing uh, of affection. That was a criminal offence. And I think that was, again, I don't want to, I'm not going to push my, um, my notes and my luck. Anyway, that was, took a long time uh, uh, to change. Anyway, um, let's just look at a, a couple of things there. Um, the family. Um, I know that uh, Marx and Engels called for the abolition of the family in the Communist Manifesto, and that demand, of course, goes back, I would guess, to the French Revolution and thinkers around uh, that sort of time. So the communist, uh, French communists would have uh, raised that demand. What did they mean by it? Uh, I think it's clear from the Communist Manifesto, I don't know about the pre-Marxist uh, radicals, is they meant the abolition of the family as a economic unit of production and an economic unit of consumption, i.e. children would be collectively reared. So the Communist Manifesto is calling for, I know it's terrible, isn't it? Public education in schools of children. What a violation of the family. And that's how the bourgeoisie saw it uh, at the time. Uh, but they also talked about the proletarian uh, family and they certainly didn't call for the abolition of the proletarian family. They said that capitalism uh, is buffeting and bashing uh, the proletarian family, so prostitution, child labor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Either way, the point I'm making is that the Gay Liberation Front was very radical. Um, it wasn't a reflection of the general times. It was way out uh, in front uh, of itself. It was encouraged by the radicalism of the times, uh, but yeah, it was uh, right out there. What was the reaction of the left? Now, I've had to, um, I, I was around, I was a school kid, but uh, yeah, I was around. So I do remember some of this stuff. Um, but um, it's a pity uh, Mike has got, Mike McNair has got uh, so many uh, papers still to mark. That's why he hasn't been here. And I was trying to get him to do an opening on this question and an article. It will come but it won't be soon, soon, soon. So I've been sort of talking to him uh, today because he says that, I don't know what the date was, but uh, he went down to the GLF headquarters. I think that was at five Caledonian Road. Those of you who know London will now know it as um, Housman's or Hoosman's uh, bookshop. And so he went down there and said, hey, um, I'm into uh, gay liberation. He was a school kid and they went, oh, my God. Um, anyway, um, he was in there um, from early times. Um, and so uh, this is partially from him and partially my own memories. What was the reaction of the left? I know my own reaction was, um, you know, to the announcement, this would be 71, 
what was it, 71? Yes, 71 of the formation of the GLF. I, what's all that about? What's all that about? Um, you know, I was rather nonplussed. I don't know whether I was coming from an economistic point of view or from a pro-Soviet uh, point of view. I, I just can't remember. Either way, I sort of shrugged. I was dead in favour of uh, the women's liberation movement. Come what year it was, a flower-bombed uh, Miss World. It was great. Um, either way, um, it has to be said that my reaction was not untypical of the left. In fact, I think I can say safely that it was very typical of the left. I was reminded, um, and this is again from Mike's memory, that the SWP took a very similar position. What the hell is this all about? Uh, this is a diversion from the class struggle. Militants certainly took uh, that position and took a long, long time uh, to come around. But in general, I'm told that the only exceptions were uh, the IMG, the International Marxist Group, which did turn up to GLF and similar pickets of things like um, WH Smith because of their refusal to stop gay times, for example, and a group that was mainly based in Liverpool at the time called Big Flame. But apart from that, very few people on the left, even though the GLF clearly consisted of anarcho and lefty types, very few um, um, groups on the left uh, dealt with the uh, gay uh, question. Now you look at the socialist and it's got a double page spread on um, uh, 50 years and how um, things need to be re-radicalized and taken away from the corporations. Yes, 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 comrades, I agree with you. Same in the socialist worker but no sense of self-knowledge, no sense of criticism, no sense of these are the lessons that we learned. Everything about, well, here's a million people on the streets, we, we better be with them, otherwise we look really square. And in fact, you would look like you were way out on planet Mars. After all, you had celebrities, at least when I looked at the pictures, I'd never heard of, but I did recognize Sir Keir Starmer, and I did recognize Angela, uh, Rainer and just there's oh there's Sadiq Khan and well yeah yeah you have to you have to be, you have to be seen don't you so what about the past the past it's not a question of not making mistakes you know we all make mistakes but to sort of gloss over uh, um, these mistakes and 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 not to recognise that you've learned a lesson is not to learn the lesson and I'd simply say this just two more things I know I've run out of time there you are no oh, two minutes to go just say two more things. One, it's worthwhile recalling, and it definitely is, uh, that one of the acts of the Russian Revolution was to abolish czarist laws against homosexual activity. It's also worth noting that uh, in the five-year plan, uh, those gains were reversed. And what I want to finish with is just because there's a million people on the streets today um, you know, celebrating um, people's sexuality and fun and partying, because that's really what uh, yesterday was. We shouldn't imagine um, in a liberal way that progress is linear, that it will keep going. All we need to do is look over the water. And I'm not talking about Ireland on this occasion. I'm talking about the big pond over to the United States. And there is the Supreme Court. Uh, Roe and Wade, what follows? We're dealing with um, constitutional um, fundamentalism, constitutional um, essentialism. What did the founding fathers of the Constitution think about gay sex? Did they approve? What about slaves, former slaves? What about women having the vote? What about contraception? You know, you just raise these questions and that's the danger. These things can be reversed. And again, just uh, um, 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 on that, think about Thatcher, 1998, Clause 28, and teachers cannot teach homosexuality. I think that was the phrase as a positive life choice. Um, and therefore, teachers couldn't talk about it. That was the actual result um, of it. And I'm not saying Britain or Europe automatically follows the United States, but, um, you know, that's where the GLF came from. Um, that's where this movement came from, a much, much more 
a deep based in America because of um, the club scene than it was in Britain. And Mike uh, did ask me to mention um, lesbians and gays support the minors. Mark Ashton, General Secretary of the YCL, and a certain Mike McNair uh, that moved the motion that the Labour Party should support positively uh, gay and lesbian rights. And then the fact uh, that um, uh, this whole movement has fragmented and intersectionalism. And although some on the left think that intersectionism is a sign of strength, um, I think it's a sign that you're ready for corporate takeover. And just look at the demonstration in London. It was fun. I'm sure people had a great time. Uh, but there's the police, not in uniform um, on the outside I'm talking about, but in the inside, except they're not allowed to wear uniform because of the last um, scandal you know, in terms of Cressida Dick and all the rest of it. But there's the Home Office, there's Tesco's, there's Barclays Bank. Uh, who, who's the biggest corporate sponsor? I can't remember offhand. Nonetheless, it's taken over by the corporates. And there are those, of course, quite healthily on the left that say, uh, let's go back to the original pride. But the original pride also had the seeds of its own destruction. Um, so anyway, I'll finish with that. Uh, it is worthwhile thinking about that whole uh, question. Uh, there has been radical change, but there's also the potential for re reversing uh, uh, that change. That's it. Thank you, Ollie.